and how is the sound in the back? Got my back peeps? You, you on board? We making connection? Okay, tonight's talk is on mindfulness of breathing and some of the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness of breathing, especially how to cultivate it, how to develop mindfulness of breathing. And if your practice isn't mindfulness of breathing, um, you found some other way to ground yourself in the present, maybe through sounds or body sensations or you're exploring some other aspect of mind, you can borrow from this. Uh, There are pieces to borrow. Um, So this is not something that you all have to shoehorn yourself into this mode. Um, But for those of you who are using the breath, whenever the breath is a part of your practice, it might occur to you, okay, now that I'm with a breath in and out, uh, is there anything more I'm supposed to do than just breathing in and out and ruffling being conscious of one breath after another? And in doing a little research for this talk, uh, it was very easy to come across um, a handful of discourses where the Buddha would walk up to someone practicing and he would ask them about mindfulness of breathing and how are they practicing it? And they said, I sit quietly I put aside my concerns for the world and my agitations to the world. And when I breathe in, I know it. And when I breathe out, I know it. And that's what I do. And the Buddha would say, um, that is how I've described mindfulness of breathing. And there are discourses where he is that succinct, that you put aside your agitations uh, from what's not present. And then you cultivate awareness of breathing in and out in a way to soothe your overly activated or aggravated mind. So if you're doing that much, you're doing mindfulness of breathing. And uh, that accords to how the Buddha taught uh, many students. But then when people are going deeper into practice, he said, and there's a way to further develop mindfulness of breathing. And he would go into these 16 steps. So these are 16 classical trainings of how to develop mindfulness of breathing. If, you're, if you want to do research on this later on, or if you're listening to this talk at home, uh, you want to look in the Samyutta Nikaya uh, 54. There's a whole collection of maybe... Uh, a couple dozen discourses on mindfulness of breathing looked at from a number of different angles. So one thing to say, I'm going to go through these 16 steps and I'm going to give you some reflection of what I've learned over now. Um, I just passed my 30-year mark. I want to get a chip or something like that. (laughs) They don't hand out chips, but um, I've actually done this practice now for 30 years. And I received a lot of different advice from a lot of different people and put it through a lot of practice. So I can only give um, my understanding what's generally known and understood about this discourse and also to 
highlight things that I've understood uh, personally through practice and study. Other people have other points of view. And if you start reading into it, you'll see other people do have their own slight take on it. Um, But there is a general concordance of how to progress mindfulness of breathing. But one of the things that might be important to to get in the beginning is that um, mindfulness of breathing is not like um, grade school that you graduate from. Mindfulness of breathing is actually, uh, it can be a foundation for your entire practice. All that needs to be revealed is deep is revealed and deepened by a deepening relationship to your breath. Not only your breath, but your breath uh, as a basis of stabilizing your attention and giving you a way to be present in more and more chaotic uh, circumstances where you might have been distracted or thrown by life. You can actually have mindfulness of breathing um, underlie your entire life. And many of the mindfulness practices end up being like that. Um, We tend not to actually graduate from them. We tend to actually just keep going deeper and deeper into them. So even after many years, uh, I've done interesting meditations, but it almost always comes back to, and how am I breathing now? And can I be in my body now? The Buddha uh, said this about mindfulness of breathing. Um, Just as in the last month of the hot season, and again, he's in northern India, uh, which gets incredibly hot during April and May, um, where it doesn't rain for many months, and then it gets really hot before the monsoons come. So just as in the last month of the hot season, when a mass of dust and dirt has swirled up, a great, cloud, a great rain cloud out of the season disperses it and quells it on the spot. So an unseasonably, uh, an early rain, rainstorm comes in the middle of the hottest season that you're unexpected. And then all of a sudden there's this uh, rain that comes and it soothes everything and it takes the dust out of the sky and there's moisture after many months of this hot weather. So an unseason, uh, a rain cloud out of season quells it on the spot, so too concentration by mindfulness of breathing when developed and cultivated is peaceful and sublime, an ambrosial, pleasant dwelling. And it disperses and quells on the spot evil, unwholesome states whenever they arise. So mindfulness of breathing is uh, is a practice that is a place that we start, and it's where we start to um, come out of the more hectic patterns of our daily life that we start retreat on. And then we use this tool of mindfulness of breathing. And what you'll see is that the breath is quite neutral, and it may be hard to imagine that it could become this incredible sanctuary, and not because it gets more fantastic. It's in its very reliability and its neutrality that the breath becomes something you trust and can find in all circumstances because you're almost always breathing. Um, you know, sometimes the breath is held for other reasons, but the breath is always there. And so it starts off as a tool of stabilization, but then the relationship to your breath 
um, begins to open up this divine dwelling, this divine uh, stable attention, this clarified heart and mind. And so the breath uh, becomes a great sanctuary. And what you'll notice as you practice is that you feel that on one afternoon or one morning, and then later on the day it gets dull again. It's hard to imagine it will become interesting again as just a breath. But that's usually a hindered state, and when the hindrance passes, and you've been loyal to it under the challenge of the hindrance, the strength of that loyalty remains, but the hindrance passes, and then you end up having a deeper relationship to your breathing. And so it continues to deepen uh, with the visitation of hindrances that block that. But actually breathing and feeling yourself breathe uh, becomes a very reliable sanctuary. Um, and that might be surprising to a lot of Americans uh, with our great Las Vegas and our other great things that we've created, that out of all the things we created, uh, the breath and the body and your own purified heart is much more of a sanctuary than any human construction, than anything we've uh, developed to amaze our senses. So because that doesn't occur to us, uh, we don't know how deep the relationship can go. And on this retreat, you'll see that. There's a <clears throat> popular song uh, that gets to this very quickly. If you change one word, you got 99 problems, but the breath ain't one. <laughs> <laughs> And that's what this retreat will show you, is you have an infinite number of problems, but breathing isn't one of them. Although in that moment, you might have trouble breathing because there's something else going on. But it's really hard to make a problem out of breathing. And so your mind will leave breathing, hopefully thinking it's going to get happier with a certain thought, and then it becomes ungrounded and it gets tossed about because it's ungrounded, and then it crawls back, where's that breath again? How do I get out of this terror? It's, it's all a swirl of too many thoughts, like, oh yeah, breathing. I wonder why I left it to begin with. So, <clears throat> if you walk away with nothing more than this, and if I could sum up what I learned in a year of Burma, uh, being a monk in Burma, I got more than 99 problems, but the breath was never one of them. But it was so neutral that it was hard to imagine that it would be a solution to problems. Like it seemed like it was a little respite, but eventually I'd have to go back into those thorny problems and solve them. And as I got more and more loyal to my breath, I started seeing through the problematic mind and the way my mind was getting tied up into knots. And then seeing through those, many problems melted away because my mind and heart were settled and it could contend with what was happening without being overwhelmed by reality. And so the problem is in much more often in the mind than in the reality, and that's a learning that we have in Dharma practice. When the mind is very settled and powerful and bright and warm, uh, there are challenges, but there aren't so many problems. The problem is actually more in the mind that is overwhelmed. So turning to the breath, taking refuge in the breath, uh, that's one long development of deepening that relationship. 
But then you see as we go through this, these 16 steps, you don't leave the breath to go handle a problem. You start breathing in the middle of that problem. You use the breath to breathe in the middle of life. So the breath becomes a tool of how you stay conscious. I've gone to many uh, Thanksgiving or other family uh, scenarios and they've gone well. But about, about five years ago, my family was going through a really hard time and we had one of our biggest uh, skeleton dancing coming out of the closets. And if I was not aware of my breath, I was as lost as everybody. And the last thing that would occur to my, my mind that was so reactive is that breathing could it all be a part of the solution to how badly my family members were acting and how much I had to control their behavior for everybody's welfare because I actually knew the way forward. And I would turn to my breath because I had faith, even though my mind didn't agree, I had faith. Let's just breathe for a second here and regain some perspective. And then I saw my own mind become less reactive. And then I started seeing, oh, I actually can participate in the solution of my family pain. And the breath was the way I got my way back. And then I would breathe and stay conscious of my breathing while I was listening to each family member and our pattern of pain in our family that got really activated. So then the breath is not a hiding place. At times you do seclude your mind to be more connected with breathing, but then that development of the seclusion of mind with breathing you then take that breath and you re-engage the world, even in very complex, uh, ordinary situations, and you find, actually I'm aware that I'm breathing. Back when Kamala was my uh, teacher 25 years ago, I was working in a crisis shelter for homeless teenagers, and John mentioned the Larkin Youth Program in San Francisco, and I was working in another program called uh, Huckleberry House. And I had learned to work there because I had worked up in Seattle in another homeless team shelter. And it was the first place I saw that I could bring the momentum of what I'd learned on retreat into direct crisis service. And that all the secluded work I was doing became um, tools of how I could actually be of greater service for longer without burning out in the homeless shelter. And so I would use my breath, my awareness of body, my awareness of my own mind, um, orientations that I got from the Dharma to be a very dedicated shelter worker. Um, so back in my 20s, that was, a, that was a big discovery that this Dharma practice on retreat was actually going to be a big way of how I had the strength to engage the world. Throughout the, um, the teachings on mindfulness discourses where they talk about meditation, there's a Pali word that's used um, called viharate. And viharati is the verb of the word vihara. And vihara often gets translated as abode or dwelling uh, or home. But a vihara is actually where the monastics live. 
And so it's the home of intentional Dharma practice and fully aligned Dharma practice. So it is a sacred dwelling. A vihara uh, is a sacred dwelling. And, a, and when you make it a verb, that's how the Buddha was saying, uh, make a dwelling when you calmly abide or dwell in meditation, it's supposed to feel like a sacred home. And that's why he would use a word like vihara or viharati, the verb. So then mindfulness of breathing is supposed to be approached not as just a, um, uh, an ordinary tool of calming your mind down, and it might often feel like that, but the longer trajectory is that it should um, awaken and soothe your heart, and in discovering your soothed heart, uh, that very home that you're making out of the breath becomes a sacred dwelling. So in getting into these steps, these 16 steps, when people see a list like this, um, sometimes it's too much information. And so I like to say when I give this much, even I put it on a little piece of paper, um, Sometimes the more important information is on this side. So if you ever look at this and it's overwhelming or you get defeated by it or I'll never get this, it's too much, it's making my mind complicated, I have intentionally left this side blank and you can look at it and you get soothed by this side. This is just breathing in, breathing out and not being a sophisticated meditator. It's just I'm just a bump on a log. I'm just an animal breathing and this whole mind thing is too complicated when it looks at this. So if you're having that reaction to this, uh, you're welcome to look at this side. And then when it's interesting, you can look at this side, and you've actually been to many of these steps, but in putting it out like this, you make it more explicit. Oh, I I can intend these things, I can discover these things. When this is laid out in this linear fashion, I don't know anybody that in a sitting does this like walking up a stepladder and steps on every step like that. The body, the mind is too organic and it's a little bit too, um, really too dynamic to be this linear in an approach. So don't get caught in thinking you have to do this in some type of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. But there is there is a sense of progression and there is a little bit of a wisdom in that progression, so the order is interesting. But in reality, you'll probably find yourself popping around within this and you can still make use of the progression. So you might find that you're using many of these steps and not in order. But to show them in order shows some of the intention behind the development. So besides breathing in and breathing out and being aware when you're breathing in, you're breathing in, and being aware when you're breathing out, you're breathing out, the next two steps are are stated while breathing in, I'm aware of a long breath. While breathing out, I'm aware of a long breath. While breathing in, I'm aware of a short breath. While breathing out, I'm aware of a short breath. Said simply, This is to make sure that you don't get into what's called hypnagogic breathing meditation, where the breath is so similar, you go into a half-aware, half-tranquil state that's not very conscious. And the very nature of breathing when you're relaxed is kind of soothing. And one breath is so much like another. 
it's not interesting enough to take note. So your mind begins to ooze off or go to sleep. And you definitely can't do the opposite, which is have a little stop watching your mind and go, okay, that breath was exactly this long, this next breath, I caught it, was a little bit shorter. That would be micromanaging. You can't look that closely at breaths and measure them. But it's inviting us to look freshly at each breath and look over the length of a breath, not just technically this is an in-breath, this is an out-breath. But how are these breaths I'm having, these breaths I'm having, yeah, strange, when I look into it, I'm not breathing very deeply. I'm taking kind of a shallow breath. Oh, this breath actually went deeper into my torso. This breath had a pause. This is the first time I've noticed my breath pausing. The other part of the day, it didn't pause. So if you start paying attention, nuances of the breath begin to show up. And that's really what this long breath and short breath is inviting us to do, is to become more and more intimate with the breath and then not fall asleep because they're subtle and similar, but to refresh your investigation, refresh your relationship to the breath. Kamala, uh, taught me a very simple phrase, um, which was going around at the time, so I'm not sure she made it up. But she said, breathe as if each breath was your very first breath. So put away all other breaths. If this was the first breath, try to have new eyes. And breathe as if each breath was your last breath, so that you don't take them for granted. And by by tuning in to first breath and last breath, I noticed that that was supportive to uh, having a fresh relationship to my breath. And then noticing, was my breath shallow in my chest? Was it deep? What was the length of it? Was it a short breath, long breath? Um, did it feel smooth or did it feel blocked? Did it feel coarse? Did it feel, um, were there pauses in it? Uh, Upandita would ask me, what was the very first sensation of your in-breath? Did you feel it as your ribs separated or as your shoulders lifted? How did you know you're breathing in? Because you could say, I'm breathing in. But what was really the very first sensation that came with in-breathing? And then could you watch the sensational field uh, open up with the breath? And then what was the last sensation of an in-breath. And that can strain you if you're looking too hard at those details. But if you're not looking for those details, you'll definitely go to sleep on the breath. So you have to find your relationship to understanding long breath and short breath. And really it's just to keep your mind fresh and curious about how breath is experienced. And are they distinct? And maybe you won't notice in the course of 10 minutes that your breath is distinct, but you might notice over the course of 15 minutes that your breath is changing. Or you have a deep breath, your mind wanders to a neutral topic, then it wanders to an exciting topic, and you come back to your breath, but your breath might have sped up a little bit. So um, it's a way of keeping a fresh inquiry on breathing, and that's how you develop, versus yes, I'm breathing in, yes, I'm breathing out. How is this particular breath? 
the next part are steps three uh, and four, and it's interesting in their order, experiencing the whole body. So while breathing in and breathing out, you experience the whole body. And what I did before was there would be breathing, and then I would choose a different object, which would be feeling my body. And so I, I was like switching channels. Yet over time I learned I'm already in the body because I'm breathing. So let me just open the aperture of my awareness to be breathing inside my body versus you have to change objects. You're with your breath. Now you're going to look at your body. And that was a more kind of um, jolting switch in my mind versus it's like uh, you know looking at you through this and I just do this. I'm already looking at my breath. Can I open up and while I'm breathing out and breathing in, can I be aware of other body sensations? And so the breath goes a little bit to the side and I become curious about all body sensations, not just breathing sensations. That was helpful for me when I use the breath to enter the body, but then I expanded from the breath to appreciate the whole body. There are many ways to ripen this step three. One of them is just to feel your whole body and then move on. Or you can begin to really uh, appreciate um, all regions of your body and do a body scan. Uh, I was taught a practice of looking at the four kinds of sensations. You have temperature sensations, so you start just by looking what areas of your body are cool, what areas are warm, what areas are pulsing, uh, can you feel movement in your body, what areas feel soft, what areas feel hard, seeing them one by one and then seeing them in pairs. Can I do temperature and pulsing throughout my body? Can I do soft, hard, plus temperature or pulsing? And then see if I can see all three. And that was actually really fascinating. That was one way it became, that helped my mind enter my body to uh, almost be like a, um, a biologist who got the chance to live inside the animal it was studying. So imagine being Jane Goodall and giving an opportunity to live inside a chimpanzee and feel it from the inside rather than looking from the outside. That was the beginning of my transition from being a very head-oriented person to being an embodied person. I enjoyed feeling body sensations and I was encouraged to enjoy that practice. After experiencing the whole body, the next step is calming bodily activity. So you first feel your whole body and then you see, can I bring anything, is there any way I can calm the body and bring it to a relaxed stillness? The more you experience your body, the better you'll be at relaxing it. If you're not willing to experience your body, but you want it relaxed, that tends to be a slightly oppressive or repressive relationship to your body. It's like I'm breathing, ooh, the body, calm down. <laughs> you know, like let's just go past three because there's a lot in there. I just kind of want it still. As you learn to ripen three and really feel into your body, that acknowledgement of your body, that understanding of what parts are holding tension, that willingness to be in it, the very willingness of the mind to be in your body, that attitude of patience and willingness 
begins to calm your body. The relationship you have to your body calms it. So four grows very organically and it's not repressive or in opposition to what you're feeling in your body. So some people have uh, already raised the question, sometimes in meditation it sounds like you're telling us to accept what's happening and sometimes you're telling us try to change what's happening. And there is both. There is both. But you're, it's more holistic to first accept what's happening before you try to intervene. So if I've noticed I'm sitting there in meditation, my body's relaxed, I, my mind wires, I wake up, and my sh- I find my shoulders are up. I don't just drop them immediately. I go, oh, interesting. My shoulders have raised. What does this feel like? Let me get to know this state. Yeah, my shoulders came up. Yeah, I'm okay with that, but it does feel more relaxing to relax them. So if I drop them quickly, there's very little to learn. But if I breathe with the way my body has shifted, then I might say, this is actually a stressful position to be like this. So now I'm going to come into a more relaxed position. If you first accept and then change, it tends to be healthier than if you just impose what you want upon your body. That's repeated throughout mindfulness teachings. First bring mindfulness to what is happening and then see if you can calm or shift what's happening towards what feels more healthy. And it's less about, I want this over that. It's just wisdom and love shows me it's kinder to my body to sit with my shoulders relaxed. But if they go up, I'm not in a bad situation. I'm noticing they go up. I used to, on my first retreats, I used to start like this. My mind would wander, and I'd come back, and I'd be like this. I was like, how could I have done that and not even been aware? So I would jolt back up, and I was like, don't do that again. My mind would wander, and I'd be down here. And over time, I was like, I want to know how I do that. So one of the things I'm going to take interest in is how do I get down there? Do I go all at once? Or is it a slow sink over time? And so I would start down here. It's like, yep, I totally missed it again. I'm down here again. How is that possible? Okay, now let's just slowly come up. No reactivity. It's just, that's hard. It's hard to breathe like that. But I am now really curious. How do I end up here? I wander and I'm down there and over time I would actually catch myself like boop, 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 boop. I was like, oh, it happens in little chunks. That's how I go down. And it's like, I actually don't need to intervene. Mindfulness was discovering something. And this ends up being a power of mindfulness is not a tool to get us where we prefer to be. But we start exposing more of ourselves to ourselves. And that's really rich mindfulness to learn how your patterns unfold. And if you, interver- if you intervene too aggressively, you don't learn about your patterns. So sometimes we do intervene because it's how we begin to stabilize. But as you drop in further, try to feel what's happening before you make an adjustment. And that's right here in this progression. Experience the whole body, calm the body. It's repeated later on, and it's repeated in other mindfulness discourses. Uh, First experience, and then through the wisdom of that exploration, 
you'll have a better intuition of how to intervene in a healthy way. We have a lot of unconscious patterns in our body and it's always funny to have a body and actually not to know it. And you don't know what you don't know. But there are layers to your body that you haven't discovered yet. On my first long retreat, uh, I was well into it and my body relaxed. I was like, I feel like I've cleared all everything out of my body. This is great. And then my mind relaxed a little bit more and it felt like um, someone had pushed a toothpick into my uh, shoulder here. I was like, ah, that really hurts and it's not going away. I didn't tweak my muscle. Like, what is that? And I felt this um, hard metal ball kind of show up over here and this toothpick here and this little metal ball there. I was like, ow, these hurt a lot. Like, I don't think I tweak them but they're really dug in. And that was the beginning of learning about whole unconscious patterns in my body that I had yet to discover. Um, beautiful sensations in my body that I also hadn't discovered, but ways that I had locked in uh, tension into my body. It's a little bit like the princess and the pea, that, um, that story where this, uh, they don't say it, but she's a real extreme meditator. <laughs> and she's practiced for decades to show off how sensitive she is. So first she lies down on a whole bunch of peas until she can count them. And then she puts a mattress over a bunch of peas and she lies down until she can count how many peas there are through one mattress. And she does that all the way down. And I'm not sure if this is the real number that goes with the actual, but maybe there's no actual number. But when I heard it as a young boy, she could feel through 21 mattresses. Is that the myth you guys know? Do you know about the princess and the pea? Is that something? Is 21 mattresses like the, the number? <laughs> there probably isn't a number. But your body ends up being like that. And so just these two things of knowing your breath, being intimate with your breath, feeling your body, relaxing your body, you'll find that it keeps going deeper. And you'll go deeper and then you'll hit some resistance in your body or you'll go through a bunch of hindrances. And as you work through them, they pass and that usually is how you go deeper. So hindrances are the sign of you're actually going deeper. Uh, that's, that's so often the case. So there are these habits and what you call a reinforced habit um, in our tradition is called a sankara. It's a habit that's built but the building of that habit ends up shaping you later. So you might think of a Sankara kind of like um, the beautiful canyon lands in the, the Southwest where the rain lands and it drains. As it drains, it cuts a groove in the land. But the next time it rains, it's likely to go down that groove. So the first, the rain cuts the groove, then the groove guides the rain then the rain cuts a deeper groove and a deeper groove guides the rain. So these habits that we use unconsciously all the time end up being the habits we use later unconsciously. So th these sankharas are something we're trying to untangle. And a lot of what we come on the first couple of days is we're just a raw jungle of sankharas that are really out of hand, but we call that normal. And we sit in the middle of them and it's just 
painfully chaotic. And then even just by breathing and settling, you're not reinforcing these sankharas. So they tend to unravel. They need to be repeated to be strong. And just by sitting here in meditation, you're untangling them. And a lot of our work is actually untangling our deepest unconscious knots. It's a way that the human mind works, uh, is that it learns something and it takes some effort to learn it. And then it becomes second nature, which isn't always bad. But when it becomes unconscious, it runs without our choice. Um, My uh, Apple computer uh, broke and I got a PC replacement for five days and I couldn't do anything on it. And every little task, I had to learn how you do that task on a PC. I had to do it. And everything I did was exhausting because what kind of was second nature on the computer I understood took a lot of conscious work. But even after five days, I was starting to get quicker on it. And that's because I was building functional sankharas that were becoming unconscious. I knew how to do things without it being cognitively burdensome. So we have these sankharas in our body, and as we relax the body, the sankharas tend to open. Uh, First they appear as a tightness. If they're unhealthy, then they tend to open, and then they tend to integrate. So you'll feel layers of that. As the body relaxes, we come into step five. And just so you know, I'm going to wait the first eight of these steps, because we'll talk about the other ones later. but the predominance of our practice is really in these first eight. So as the body authentically relaxes versus being rigidly held still, when it knows organic relaxation, there tends to be better circulation and uh, the body begins to tingle where there's good vitality and circulation. And we call that tingling that good circulation, the warmness, the aliveness in your hands, in your face, in your feet, but suddenly parts of your body start to feel healthy and alive with good circulation. Those sensations we call PT, P-I-T-I, and Susie uh, mentioned them earlier as an awakening factor and also as a factor that leads towards concentration is the relaxed body, relaxed mind, PT begins to flow. It's not as bound up. As PT begins to flow, if it's balanced, it feels very pleasant. If it's not balanced, it feels unpleasant. It feels restless. So restlessness tends to be PT that's partly blocked and partly jolting. Your body feels very discordant with that uh, dysregulated aliveness. But as the mind settles, the body settles, the PT flow tends to smooth out and you feel, oh, this feels great. I've never had warm hands before, but my hands are warm. And I feel like my feet are warm and this tingling is going further up my arm than I'm familiar with. And there was actually a sitting I had that I can't wait to have again. (laughs) Um, And therefore I block it. But a peak experience might be like this, this tingling, like I've never, my body always felt like like a really hard potato and all of a sudden it was just alive with spices and I just, it was such a, a bouquet of body sensations. 
that tends to be the ripening of a truly relaxed body is that there's good circulation. So again, every time you ripen one of these steps, the next step is much more accessible. If you try to jump past a step, it's harder to access the step and that's some of the wisdom of why this is laid out the way it is. So the more you're willing to feel the body, the more you come into a healthy relaxation of the body. And some parts of the body don't relax very easily. And sometimes the body is in a discordant place and so you can only relax parts of your body. So don't think it has to relax 100% for you to be making headway. But the parts of your body that relax will tend to have this uh, healthy vitality. And what I didn't know until I really studied this is the Buddha wanted us So far, these are all, except for feeling the whole body, which might expose you to some unpleasantness, a lot of these are actually pleasant. So as the Buddha is guiding us into mindfulness of breathing, what I was shocked to learn is how many of his suggestions were heading towards immediate happiness and well-being. I was such a loyal sufferer when I first came in. And we have a a practice integrity that was the more you suffered, kind of the the secret badges you were earning, if you could really be conscious of your pain. But that was sort of locking up into just number three and the pain side of the equation, not really learning much how to relax or actively look at relaxation. And then you look at what parts of your body are well. And I'm looking at all of you And I already know that as a species, we gravitate towards what's not good. So there's a couple of reasons we do that. Uh, We are the descendants of the nervous monkeys. And it's deeply biological that we are threat-oriented. And I just heard an evolutionary biologist say that um, we've only recently become the top of the food chain last time our nervous system was developed, we were mid-food chain. If you see lions and elephants, they're not looking over their shoulder very much because there's not much that can come get them. Our nervous systems were developed when there were things bigger than us. And so we have a threat-scanning mind. We don't have a king of the jungle uh, mentality. So when the Buddha says, experience PT, relax your body, And then don't keep looking at all that's dysfunctional in your body. There is room for that. That's what number three is. You want to experience your whole body. But then do look at what parts of your body are well. And I've had uh, an illness for 20 years and lots of my body has been expressing the stress of the illness. But after I do step three, where I'm experiencing my whole body, I do look for parts of my body that are well and I take refuge in them. It's not to deny other parts of my body that are not well, but if I only work with what's not well, that will drain my mind and my mind will reflect the parts of my body that are not feeling well. So I do that to be honest, but there's a skillful navigation to relax your body and in that relaxation, look at the parts of you that are well. Later on, you can return to parts of you that are not well, but don't unconsciously keep going towards what's not well. Acknowledge it, allow it to be there. It's part of the picture. 
we have Spirit Rock in a beautiful place so that externally there's a lot of beauty to connect with. And it starts to change your story inside because you know my nose has never really got a cramp. So I got 99 problems, my nose isn't one of them. My ears often are not in pain. So if I have pain, I can really make a lot out of it. But sometimes it's better first to go to the parts of your body that are well, take a breath in your wellness, and then use that wellness to hold the parts of you that are not well. And by the time your mind gets drained and reactive, don't force it with willpower. Restore yourself by coming back to the parts of you that are well. So looking for this PT, the tingling, the aliveness, um, the warmth in your hands, uh, often the parts of your body that are well and there's good circulation will have the sense of aliveness. Some people translate PT as bliss and um, I've worked for 30 years not to resent those people. Because <laughs> I haven't had a lot of bliss in my practice. Um, of the year I was a monk in Burma, when I left, I don't remember it, but I was clear that when I left, there were only five hours I'd be willing to experience again of the year I was there. Take out those five hours and it was neutral or challenging. And so I experienced a lot more pain there than I had ever felt before. Um, I didn't experience a lot of bliss. And so when my friend was like, how do you handle all the bliss? I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, that's not my path. Um, <laughs> but for me, PT has been blissful, but it also sometimes doesn't feel particularly pleasant. It just feels like, yeah, there's a lot of aliveness. I feel subtle tingling in my hands, and sometimes that's blissful, but more often to me it feels like aliveness. After feeling the aliveness, the PT, then we're asked to experience sukha. And again, this is a factor that leads to concentration. And why this progression leads towards concentration is we're supposed to be aware of PT in the body. And then you become aware of sukha in the body. PT tends to be a, a happiness that's very uplifting. Sukha tends to be a happiness that's very soothing and reassuring. So when sukha is a lead factor, I feel like I'm on a rocking chair on a porch looking over a field. I see a flock of birds at a sunset and there's just infinite peace. That's sukha to me. It's very settling. There's a lot of contentment, a lot of well-being. That's a profound example of sukha. Piti to me is when um, the pride parade is going through San Francisco and you cannot believe the energy that's being unleashed in the joy of the Pride March in San Francisco. It's very PT up. Sukha is very settled. And then when you know these two factors, you can try to see them at the same time. And this becomes the basis of how deep uh, meditative absorption opens. Is that you have all the well-being of Sukha, but rather than that well-being leading into kind of a, a settled tranquility, it's refreshed by the PT. So the PT alivens you, the sukha settles you, and when you mix them together, you have something called 
piti sukhana in Pali. It's blending the live energy in a field that's very peaceful. You will know this and you have experienced this. If it sounds foreign, it's just right now the language isn't mapping onto your experience. But often, the times that you're enjoying meditation, there's some amount of PT flowing through you and there's some amount of sukha and you become aware of that. That's actually what I'm feeling in my hands right now. I feel the tingling, but the tingling is happening in kind of a warm spaciousness of good circulation. So I have PT sukhana in my hands right now. Piti Sukhana on my feet. As the body relaxes and settles and opens, you're going to feel more of these subtle sensations. And if the body is relaxed, but it has this nice flow of aliveness, that becomes the body basis of concentration or samadhi. Same thing will happen in the mind, the mental field. It can be very delighted but it can feel sometimes too caffeinated. So you're very delighted, but you can't stay with the breath because there's all this creativity. So you can feel the aliveness in the mind and it feels good versus the sluggishness or the oppressive sleepiness. But you want that aliveness to happen also in a spacious well-being. So you invite the mind to be as broad and spacious as this room with the lights on. The PT lights things up. The open spaciousness means that all that energy doesn't get uh, discordant. This is a pleasant ripening in your practice. Um, You can't demand it. You're like a gardener growing the tomatoes. You can't demand tomatoes, but you create the conditions for them to grow. When the hindrances do pass, you tend to get more of this PT sukha. And when the hindrances come, just that ability to work with them, the hindrances are the time you're in the gym. When the hindrances pass, you feel the strength afterwards and you feel the vitality. So the PT sukhana tends to flow on the other side of the waves of hindrances. If you have cultivated some PT and some sukha, there's more pleasant abiding here and now. So when you come into step seven and you're looking at your mental activity, if you don't have much contentment here and now, your mind is going to be really driven to think about how could I be happier? Where is happiness? How can I plan it? How can I... So to create some a peaceful abiding here and now, the mind's like, wait, why do I want to plan a vacation? I'm actually doing good here. Like, this is pleasant. I don't want to wander. So again, as you ripen steps six, five and six over time, patiently cultivating this over time, then you, again, experience your mental activity. You recognize what's happening. And the more you bring mindfulness to what is happening, the more you can organically calm it down. In the beginning, we ask you to just see if you can come back to the breath and calm, back to the breath and calm down. Because those activities are so jarring that um, if you didn't do that, they would take you over. But if you've done steps one through six and your body is feeling some settledness, you're heart and mind start to be somewhat gathered. 
you then can begin to experience your heart and mind. You don't keep having to steer it back to the breath. That is good, but you can breathe and be aware of how much your mind is trying to solve a past argument. And you could talk yourself out of it, drop it like it's hot and go back to the breath. Or at some point you say, you know, I'm not actually lost. It's just my mind is caught in this story. So I've practiced dropping it, but now I'm going to breathe and acknowledge this story is happening now. And before I intervene, I'm going to use mindfulness to look at what is occurring. That's where some learning starts to happen. When you can breathe inside your mental activity with some awareness, you then start noticing all the patterns in your mind. But if you always drop them and go to the breath, that can be good to stabilize your practice, but you haven't really brought much mindfulness into your habits. So step, five, uh, step seven here, you're bringing mindfulness into your mental activity. If you get lost, you can then try to wake up again and say, oop, I'm lost. Okay, I'm planning. I better go back to my breath because I am getting lost in this planning. But before I go, I'm going to just acknowledge my mind right now is having this drive towards planning the end of the retreat. And so I'm noticing that. Later on, you might be able to say, you know, all I have to do is just keep in mind I'm in a planning mode, but now I can watch it like a movie. I can actually use mindfulness to watch a pattern of my mind. The pattern, when I can finally wake up within a pattern, it's much more likely to dissolve and transform than if I only know how to drop it and turn away. Yet there are times you do have to drop certain habits because you're not waking up within them. They're so compulsive that they do just take you over and they define your world. So sometimes you drop thoughts like they're hot and you go back to your breath. That's not a bad training. That does stabilize. But as the retreat progresses, you'll find, I actually want to know the habit. And before I drop it, I want to see if I can name it, if I can understand the, the intensity of the thought. Was it pleasant? Was I winning? Was this uh, something I need to want, you know, I want to remember? Or is it just a fairly shallow, wandering mind? Like, what's, what was it about this mental activity? And then again, <clears throat> when you know certain mental patterns, when you ask, ask them to relax, they're much more likely to relax because you knew what was driving them. Oh, there's just so much to say about this talk. Um, one time I was walking with some, uh, doing walking meditation, and this other yogi started walking next to me, and they dragged their right foot. And so, the, and it was a carpeted floor. So every time they dragged it, there'd be a little zzzt, And I was having this meltdown of, <laughs> of rage. And then I hated them. I was like, that's not helpful. I hated the sound, that's not helpful. I accepted the sound, I couldn't accept it. And then I put my head against the wall and I just listened. Why can't I accept the sound? Day one, I couldn't figure it out. Day two, I couldn't figure it out. Day three, I couldn't figure it out. 
and I moved to a different walking place, they found me. They started walking next to me again. And finally, I had this real heartbreak, and I just like, I can't practice. I cannot. I'm so aggravated. And when my heart broke open, I began to look, why am I this upset? And I saw, I can't practice in a way I'm going to get that look from my teachers that they're really happy. And even though we try not to do that, every now and then we reinforce a sense like, oh, you had that experience, that's fun. But I'm going to walk in like, I just was angry. (laughs) And it looked like it wasn't a great thing to report. So my heart was, and that's what I was actually attached and why I was resisting this person's foot is I wanted to do walk meditation so good that when I walked in to tell my teachers, I would get this affirmation. And what I imagined I would do is walk in and just tell them how much I had been defeated by something as little as a shoe dragging on the floor. Sometimes going into something, it takes a while, but you begin to feel what the hook is. And if you just turn your attention, the hook stays in the system and you keep having to fight a hook in your mind. Sometimes you actually have to turn towards the hook and it's not immediately obvious, but at some point you feel, oh, wow, I can actually see the hook in my mind. These are also patterns in your mind. These are also things that we are conscious of or unconscious of, but what meditation does is it creates so much self-intimacy as we end up exposing ourselves to ourselves. And the good patterns tend to thrive, and the patterns that torment us tend to fall apart with that type of witnessing. These first eight steps are going to be 99% of your practice, 99.9% of your practice. Coming to your breath, knowing your breath, recommitting to your breath, not getting bored of your breath, getting bored of your breath, but doing it anyhow, recovering your relationship to your breath, getting to know your body, relaxing your body, finding happy abiding here and now, finding the sukha factor, these PT factor, starting to understand how your mind is running through these patterns one by one revealing them to yourself and then learning how not just to turn away from them, but actually relax them from within them. That's most of your practice. As these eight steps develop, we come into the next uh, group of four, uh, next group of eight actually, we're only halfway through them. you start getting windows where the mind isn't as compulsively driven and you're not fighting patterns. As that begins to ripen, you can cultivate samadhi. And samadhi is when the heart is just wholly given over to one thing. So you can invite this by saying, I give myself fully over to breathing. I walk out and it makes no sense to anybody Everybody who looked at this would be aghast, but I'm really giving myself over to just being a breathing animal. And all these problems are not important. What is important is breathing. When that's sincere, you'll go into a full relationship to breathing. That full relationship we call samadhi. And in those moments, you'll notice 
my mind is not tormented right now. I'm not fully awakened, but you start to know a mind that isn't tormented by its old habits. That's the third tetrad. We'll talk more about samadhi. And I just wanted to show you how it grows out of these first four steps, uh, first eight steps. Those are steps nine through 12. And then we get into steps 13, 14, 15, 16. And we'll talk more about these as well. We have using breathing to understand impermanence to really see it in your experience, to take the light in watching impermanence, to understand how liquid the world, the universe really is. Through that understanding of impermanence, we lose a, a, an unwinning battle of trying to find happiness in a transitory world by trying to build the perfect sandcastle. As we let go of these compulsive happy uh, habits, there comes a place where we cease the drive, we cease the mind that's caught. And it's another layer that's deeper than just momentary well-being. The mind loses its capacity to create suffering. This is what's developed in 13, 14, 15, 16. It takes its own development, its own talk to guide through that. So you really couldn't uh, give all this in one talk. But what I want to do is give you a bird's eye view that the work you're doing in these first eight steps becomes the ground that creates beautiful wholeness of heart here and now uh, called samadhi. And then also by breathing in and out with a whole heart, that intimacy reveals impermanence Impermanence is something we become to be able to breathe in the middle of understanding how impermanent our bodies are, our internal world, our external world. It undermines the ground that we create all of our dramas out of, our resistance to impermanence. And then there's a whole other level of ceasing of this drive that we never know how to address, this discontent um, driving mind that's always trying to figure out how to be happy and it can't because it can't quite deal with how things actually are. And when the mind lets go on this tremendous level, there's another understanding that's deeper than just momentary happiness, that you've let go of all the ingredients of suffering. We will have to unpack that over much more practice and many more Dharma talks. But just to show uh, in detail the first eight steps and then more of a bird's eye view over the next uh, group of eight. This is how the Buddha wanted us to develop mindfulness and breathing. And it's a progression through using um, pleasure and navigation and stability in relationship to breathing to start to untangle our habits and to bring rest, to make a sanctuary inside, in our hearts and our minds um, through mindfulness of breathing. So <clears throat> again, a lot more to come. Uh, I went through uh, the second half of this much more quickly because we'll take more time on it later. But I did want to show the first eight steps in more detail 
And what I wanted to bring out are some themes. Uh, that breathing with something before you intervene makes usually the intervention, the intervention uh, more holistic. So you're six days into the retreat, you will start noticing that you can consciously be with a greater range of experience. And that will ripen. That's why you come on a long retreat. So with that much shared, with that much uh, said, uh, let's sit together for a few moments. I invite you to make a gentle vow to simplify your practice and become wholeheartedly loyal to however you're practicing, to feeling your breath, if you're doing breathing meditation or your body, or resting more faithfully with sounds, or when you're doing the loving kindness practice, give your heart over, take the risk of being fully in your practice. Feel your steps when you're walking, taste your food when you're eating. And we will be cultivating these steps that the Buddha offered that cultivates our release, our freedom, our well-being. So the bell is a little far from me. I'm just going to say the bell has rung. (laughs) I want you to remember the sound of a bell. (laughs) And as you know, the evening heads into a walking period, and then a final uh, sitting together. So enjoy, or at least be present for what's to come.